0: In what we're doing now, we're getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast of organic. Yeah, it's a you which. Know, go straight into it this is your host and you're listening to the radio network where you can find us every monday at 1 p.m central time at prn.fm so anyway i'm joined here no official introductions necessary sergio Corgan, who's been on the program before luke Lafko, who we have talked about on the program before and uh yeah who is a gentleman who we served with um and who has been, uh, you know, increasingly getting active and, and being participating in different things. And so anyway, uh, yeah, we were just talking about something. I totally forgot what we were going to go into. But Luke, it's good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Man. It's good to be on your program. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to get a chance. The producers haven't told me yet because I haven't asked. So I don't want to uh, get the producers in trouble. But um, yeah, I don't think there's a program next Monday for Memorial Day weekend. So that means we're going to have to talk about Memorial Day shit this week because we won't have a chance. So this is kind of a perfect setup for us. Um, Yeah, tell us a little bit about your background, Luke. Where the hell do you come from? Where do you live (laughs) now? Why do we know each other? Uh, Where have you been and why? Yeah, man. Explain the last 15 years of your life right now. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, that's a lot of ground to cover. No, no, no. But, you know, like, why did you join the Marine Corps? How did we get to know each other?
1: Um, well, to be completely honest, never, I never—I didn't join the Marine Corps because of 9/11 or any other abstraction. It was uh, Same here. mainly just to get out of uh, the Rust Belt, Buffalo. Um, the economic situation wasn't um, wasn't too kind to the folks out there. Um, I was uh, coming into my own—at um, least I thought I was at that time—and I thought the military would have been a, a good escape, a good outlet, just like any other, you know, young man mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. So um, I joined the Marine Corps and six months later, I run into you
0: guys. And- <laughs> well, no, wait, tell, me, tell me about the early part. All right. Tell me about the early part. So what, did you just walk into a recruiting office? Did you go with a buddy? Was there a buddy involved? No, no. I actually went by myself. Um, at this point, I just got released from
1: um, um, a county facility for um, misdemeanor charge and. You know some other <laughs> just stuff a Yeah, well, I was just it was disorderly <laughs> conduct. I had um, okay. I had called a, a police officer an asshole, and um, yeah. that that led to a shouting match, and then um, I proceeded to make like a threatening gesture, which was me like you know kind of like at that time I was very young and um, so it was, well, was really a con- threatening gesture. Well, yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. So okay. it landed me, uh, it landed me uh, a. <laughs> it wasn't a it case
0: me just under three months. It wasn't. So. <laughs> You, it wasn't you, a case of the police overextending themselves. No, no, no. no you, you really I mean, deserve to be beat down, probably. Were you rocks at him? <laughs> no, no, not contest. at all. Not at all. All right. I'm sorry. But anyways,
1: <laughs> it, um, when I came home, my uh, my mother uh, wasn't too happy with me. Didn't want to look me in the eyes anymore. I mean, I just went from um, you know being revered as like you know I was just I was uh, just going through a phase in my life as adolescence. I'm going to come on my own and move on to college. And at this point, I wasn't I was in college. I just graduated high school. I was in my first year of junior college at um, Erie Community College up in New York, uh, I believe Williamsville. And um, I, I just, I don't know, after the first uh, several semester, I figured it wasn't, for, it wasn't for me. So, and I was still getting involved with the police and getting pulled over. And I just felt like I needed to escape and I didn't want to make, you know, I didn't want to disappoint my parents anymore. So when I did go down to recruiting office, um, my father had told me that, um, you know, what i shouldn't do told me not to join the infantry it's going to suck you know try and get a job you know learn a skill set and um it didn't happen that way i just uh, i just said hey you know i'm, <laughs> I'm going to join the marine corps i'm going to go all in with it and i joined the the infantry and yeah it was um it, it was a big transition
0: but what did you expect what did you expect compared to what you well to be honest yeah, i was
1: kind of disappointed um when i first went to, to boot camp I, I was surrounded by guys that were um significantly, um, smaller and weaker than I was at that point. I mean, then I was, I was 21 when I joined and there was 18 year olds in 1920. But, um, so I mean, I had a few years on them and so a little bit more experience at this point. Um, very, um, how do I explain it? Just, just, just weak in stature. I think I was. I was thinking like when I envisioned boot camp, like very, mm-hmm. you know, very muscular men, and like you know, everyone's gonna be exercising like mm-hmm. all the time. And it was it was more mental than it was physical. I think the physical part. I think anybody could really um, can hack it, but right. The mental part was just you know, um, well, how do I say? I don't want to say weak, but um, if you were if you had thicker skin, you'd be able to um, handle that. But yeah. that, that's pretty much what it was for me. Aside from, you know, the extra abuse you would get from you know laughing out of turn or quote unquote, losing your bearing or, um, you know, other than that, it was wasn't
0: really too uh, strenuous. (laughs) So I I was disappointed with that. So when we say losing our bearing, just for those who might not be privy to military language, that is the best example I would use for that is like if you if anyone out there has ever seen um, full metal jacket, you'll notice in the first part, the boot camp part. There's plenty of times in, in boot camp where you sort of just have to stand there in a certain position. And then we'll, who we call the drill instructor, um, who the Army calls a drill sergeant, will like come up to you and yell at you and different things. And like if you don't stand there straight face, like in the movie when Arlie Army punches Joker and some other guys for like, you know, for not Washington. maintaining a, a straight face. So anyway, that's Smart. what losing your bearing is. Um but it's interesting because all three of us uh, share that uh, perspective. Like, so for I've had conversations with Sergio in the past where I think both of us expected boot camp to be uh, much more physically trying, mm-hmm. and I think we both expected there to be a certain stature of men. Uh, and I say men because that's how it's structured. Like, there were no women in boot camp. It felt
1: like summer football camp in high school, just you know for several
0: weeks longer. Right. It wasn't really. You anything. can't leave.
1: Yeah. I mean it was like I said, it was just all
2: more mental but
0: And the coaches can abuse you. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well and tell you to kill everything too. Yeah, yeah
0: see that, that see that's the biggest thing that, that really gets me like
1: when really when I really think about it and I go back to it, we were running around seeing, you know, in cadence and, and you know, talking about running in this in the schools and, you know, killing children.
2: I mean, you know, I mean oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> crazy. No, shit. No, it's insane. It's
2: it's crazy eventually totally catches up to you, you know. Yeah. yeah, well, some people
0: craziness. So. Well, everyone, it all it, it always catches up. I think unless you're a com- in, complete sociopath and those things mm-hmm. don't bother you. But yeah, I I agree. I think that that's like one of the worst. I mean, at that time, I mean, any, any young kid they just associate that that
1: machoism with mm-hmm. you know what's going on and being a marine and you know how, how the Marine Corps is revered you know um throughout the country you know I'm, I'm sure Yeah, exactly. Music. It's everywhere. It's ingrained. It's instilled. I mean, from the moment that you know you turn four years old and your uncle hands you a
0: you know a sack of army guys, right? You know, yep, yep, absolutely. So you go to boot camp. You go to Paris Island or West Coast? I uh, went to the uh, West Coast, MCRD wow. San Diego. Yeah. I got lucky, even um, all the way in in Buffalo.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was weird because I was supposed to go to Paris Island, and then at the last minute they told me I was going to the West Coast um they had a slot to fill. Well it was actually interesting, when I got done with the maps, the whole medical, they um they had told me that I had six months prior to my ship out date. Um within a week of getting cleared to the medical doctors, after I already got like my leave date, I got a phone call from my recruiter and told me that I have 20 minutes to decide. There's a slot open on the following Monday. Ah, okay. And my okay. father, my father had told me, um, well, you know, when I got the phone, I told my father, he's like, get the fuck out of here. He's like, at this point, they just they were they were done. Just the shit I was getting into, the shenanigans, and it was nothing too crazy, but enough to where you know it was causing them a significant amount of money stress. stress. Yeah, stress. yeah, and we didn't, you know, we we didn't we didn't grow up with a whole lot of money. My folks didn't really start coming into their own, and you know, um, petite bourgeoisie, quote unquote, you know. Um, lower middle class. till so, you know, we all graduated, all the kids graduated high school and moved on and see what's interesting about my family. My sister did eight years in the air force. My brother did four years in the air force and my youngest brother, he did six years in the coast guard and he did intelligence. And um, so it was just me and my father and my father was in the Marines during the eighties. He got out in 90, 1990 or 89. One of those two years so he was playing a lot of softball,
0: yeah. <laughs> drinking a lot
1: of beer. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, what I t- heard from
0: Marines who yeah. were during that
1: time. He would tell yeah. me about Okinawa and the yeah. Philippines and, you know, a lot of it was just, I mean. Did he go to
0: Australia? No, it didn't. unfortunately, no, he didn't get to go there. Right? Yeah, but I'm right. sure. We might not there. have had bases there at that time.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with that. But, yeah, it was, um, well, just the whole four years of being in the Marine Corps and,
0: well, let me get back to the yeah. timeline. Okay, so you get what you graduate boot camp. What uh, year is it? Give me some time. It's what? 2004. Okay, it's so 2004, you graduate yeah. early 2004. You go to the School of Infantry at Camp Pendleton. Yeah. Um. What anything significant there? No, it was just an extended version of what we would call right. during boot camp of being up north, where it's a lot of
1: uh, rifle training. And then you start doing um, um getting the um, other light weapons. Um, Throwing grenades, stuff like that, long field ops, camping, basically camping with machine guns
2: mm-hmm.
1: and doing little staged events with like attacks and stuff, you know.
0: Boy Scouts with rocket launchers. Yeah, I
1: mean, if I, I mean, really, the Marine Corps—the way I like to explain it to people—it's like grade 15 with machine guns and grenades I mean, that's, and, racism and, and racism and xenophobia. Yeah, it's
0: of course and sexism and. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we'll get to that stuff. So, all right, which is the important stuff. But for now, um, okay. So you go to you go to school of infantry it's spring of 2004 yeah yeah the the war is raging um what is your fa- like what's happening at that point? Like what are you thinking? What is wh- where's your mind at? You're about to be sent to a unit.
1: To be quite honest, I, I mean at that point, you know, at that at that time, they were still telling us, "Oh, well, you can go on a um a UDP, if I remember correctly, Unit Deployment Program."
2: Mm.
1: Um you're going to go to like on a Westpac sit on an aircraft carrier and you know, um hit hit stop. So in my head I'm thinking like, "Oh, man, I'm going to get to do what my dad did, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago at this point." And um you know, unfortunately, that didn't happen. They first put me to the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, and sat on the at Camp Pendleton. And then within three days, they told me, no, you're actually going up north to 1-7. But don't worry, you're still in California. It's 29 Palms. I had no idea what 29 Palms was. Ah. All I remember was getting on a bus, and everything went green to basically brown, and then it was just, you know... <laughs> It, it was like uh, the prime. God, yeah. It was like God's blind spot. It was like good, good weed going to bad weed, yeah. Like yeah. Put it was in. terrible, yeah. terrible experience. And then when I got there, me and a handful of other guys, it was like going to prison. It was. It was like going to prison. It was like three decks of just
0: drunk Marines. I was one. I mean, people getting hazed,
1: crashed. Yeah,
0: we were the. <laughs> we no, no, no. Yeah. But I wanted to. I'm just saying. I was definitely. Oh one yeah, of those for, drunk, sure, drunk for sure, for Marines yeah. hanging out in the. See, but you got to us. So you got to the unit, and we were in the indoor barracks. Right? No, outside barracks. We had the catwalks. We had catwalks. We had the when catwalks. Got there. This is when Clark was still alive. So this is, you know, this is. Um, yeah, no, but he was still June alive. When we were in the. Uh, he was still alive. Two thousand four, June two thousand four. Yeah, but he was still there when we were on the inside barracks like we're yes the,
2: you know, yeah so was yes. that was like yes. three or four months you guys lived there oh, okay it was
0: short three or four yeah. like for
2: five short. months i hated they those they put names. us there yeah it was horrible it was like a, See, I can't it was it was like a mental it facility prison, is yeah. what it was like they
1: actually moved us yeah, you know after you guys way. got out they had actually moved this around they shuffled us around um up and down that hill because uh, the buildings were had asbestos the plumbing didn't work yeah. doors wouldn't lock um yeah that was like the rough
0: part of the we yeah we lived in like the urban decay of exactly. the base we <laughs> were like in the, like in no the neighborhood that nobody wanted to go plus the way the base was set up at 29 Palms it's all on a hill so as you're walking toward the north part of the base you, you, it, it's just steeper and steeper so it's a pain in the ass especially in 105 degree heat with your uniform on it sucks having to walk up there for whatever. So it just suck being up there in general. You almost,
1: you almost think that was on purpose, you know, like where they put us because the rest of the base, we either went for the golf course that was green and, you know, the base housing. <laughs> the it's top, like
0: they, they, they kept this, yeah. the fact that there's a golf course out there. Is, well, you, it's, you have to have us isolated. You know?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. The golf course was amazing. It was like, I mean, I'm sure if you can look, look at it from the aerial, you know, image, it'd be just a green spot and, you know, the barren wasteland. It's like
0: finding, um, you know, uh, a green lawn on Mars. <laughs> so you, so we, all right. So you get to 29 palms. It's the summer of 2004. We are preparing the unit one seven to go on its second deployment to Iraq. What, what are you thinking leading up to that deployment? And then sort of bring us up to the first part of that deployment.
1: Well, at this point we had, um, you know, we had that battalion meeting and, um, you know, what really got me is what really the, the reality had already set in um, when I forget where battalion sergeant major was. But uh, he told us, he's like, yeah, he's like, we're going to Iraq and things are a little crazy. And, um, you know, there's going to be Marines here that are that are going to die. And, um, you know, once that sunk in, it you know, it forces a 21 year old kid to, you know, really, really think about, you know, what they're doing, and where they're going the reality of the situation so that was kind of uh it was it was hard for me to figure that one out i I think i uh i drank a lot of alcohol that evening uh well most of us did i mean this is like most evenings yeah uh, didn't matter what day it was and you know those days didn't exist but it was uh, a lot of alcohol but anyways that's exactly what i did that night and i think i woke up the next morning there was like other drunk chaos that went on so it kind of like just you know, it flooded my mind off from the immediate thought. And then I we just got on the buses and headed over to the flight line and started our, our our route
0: to Iraq. But you weren't thinking anything political at this point. No, no, no. I mean I I, I
1: just associate like everybody else did with Iraq, with nine eleven, Saddam Hussein, terrorism,
0: yeah. You know. Okay. So you so we get to Al Khaim. tell me about that deployment just in, in in general. What are you what 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 uh what were your impressions you get we get there um how long were you there we were uh, well the first two days we were there the first 48 hours we had
1: like our our unit had lost like five guys i think
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then we were just still on uh, you know unloading our sea bags from the seven tons mm-hmm.
0: and they, yeah, so they high level guys too captains and yeah guys.
1: yeah 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 we weren't just doing ours and we were basically doing you know <laughs> we were basically doing the whole the whole unit but um yeah, once that um, once we lost those guys, I mean, that's when I really started thinking about it again. But there's so much that you know was forced to going on. There was no there's no real downtime. Like we didn't actually really get to sleep for, oh God, I don't know, four or five days into actually getting there, and they housed us in this you know this dugout like a dust bowl. So every time we walked, it was just kicking up so much dust and soot. So I mean, just even staying you know clean was a was was a process. And we didn't have running water. We didn't have power at this point. You know. Everybody's still drinking, you know, warm bottled water, mm-hmm. still eating out of the sea rats until the whatever makeshift uh, kitchen we had was and set then up. They built the real And then they built the, the real, real one. big kitchen. I actually went back there again in 2006 to that same base um, after my second tour. And it was, I mean, I couldn't well, believe it. They, they flew true. in like 3,000 Kuwaitis. You know, there's Ugandan soldiers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just you're getting things made to order.
0: I couldn't believe it. It was wild. Yeah. Which is insane because, yeah. of course, the Iraqi people.
1: Well, were, same in Al-Assad. Like, when we got to El assad there was nothing there. Yeah. You know, there was, you know, it was it was Saddam's Air Force Base, and it was completely just destroyed within, you know, 13, 14 months. My return back, it was, uh, I mean, we had, they had shuttle buses, internet cafes, A lot of money. thousands upon thousands of, you know, uh, soldiers from all across, the well, the United States, Canada, um, in different other parts of the country, we had some, um, you know, the Brits were there, we had the Ugandians, if I'm pronoun- uh, pronouncing that correctly. Um, yeah, it was just wild to me how we would just have to get on a shuttle bus, and they would take us to different parts of the space. And the fact that you actually had to get on a bus to go to this massive chow hall. I mean, it was a chow hall that you could literally, you know, it, it wouldn't be hard for you to spend, you know, eight, nine, ten hours in there. With it being air conditioned, it being, you know, 110 outside and... I mean, this thing was like, uh, you know, it was amazing, but I couldn't believe that all that had, had uh, just produced you know, had, uh, got built up
0: in a short span of time. I and mean, we were definitely,
1: it was definitely, we were definitely there for the long haul.
0: A lot of money. Yeah. a lot. So of you, money. so were you seeing this? Okay. So billions and billions mm-hmm. of dollars being poured into chow hall. You left because of an injury, you left the deployment, that deployment. Yeah. You, yeah. Right? Our friend, uh, So Ken- when did you leave at that point?
1: I left uh, right before Christmas. I, I left at the end of uh, November. Oh,
0: okay yeah okay okay
1: um, so from there they'd uh, shipped me to Balad Iraq. okay and um, Balad was wild because they they, had, they couldn't do anything with me and, I, and I, at the time we were thinking that you know um, my injury they were just gonna cut around the, cut out the soft tissue, and let me heal and pack me inside. Well, they had told me that my heal time would have been um, probably you know six to eight weeks. So, um, and they were also just completely swamped with mass casualties. You know, double amputees, triple amputees. You know, I mean, I mean, there was there's from just, the IEDs. Yeah, to, yeah. Right. I mean, they they were definitely busy, and they were everywhere. What really actually surprised me about lot Balad Air Force Air Force Base in Iraq was that they had housed in these giant tents the wounded soldiers that were in recovery next to the wounded insurgents, and the only thing, only only thing that was separating the two was a, was a was a curtain and two Air Force MPs. So that was interesting when I think about that too, and there was a lot of you know shit talking going back and forth, you know, and I, it's funny because they had actually given me a, like a quick tour of that, like this is where you're going, and I went to another tent and talked to a specialist. That's when they told me that, you know, we're not going to do anything here with you because you're actually going to have you know a longer recovery time. So from there they sent me to Germany. Long story short, same thing with Germany. They had said, um, you know, my recovery time was going to be too long, and that, you know, they need open beds for. The casualties coming back from the battle, you know, from the battle zone. So I went to twenty-nine Palms. At twenty-nine palms got stitched up and waited for you guys to finish the deployment, and then the chaos started
0: all over again. So, okay, so you come home. I say home. Where did you go when you went from Iraq and Germany, then back to the states? Where did you go in the states? Right back, back palm's? to right back to And then you waited for us. Yes. So it was yeah. a lot like actually. Well, actually, hour.
1: when when I got done, we had I had, um um our, our friend at the time, Kevin Clark, mm-hmm. um his parents after he had you know he had passed several several weeks after I was medevaced out, they had asked um you know they they knew that I was back in the states and, and requested if I can come up there and um, be there for the funeral. Mm-hmm. So I went up there and did that.
0: Oh, I forgot that. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and that's when I went back to 29 poems after that was
0: all said and done. Okay, so it was a lot like the first time I was deployed. I had to mm-hmm. like came back and then waited. Mm-hmm. For these people to get back mm-hmm. like Sergio, um, who hasn't said anything. He's just he's, no, he's happy. No, he's, happy to, he's, he's very happy to not say anything. I'm sure. But, um, <laughs> all right. So you come back. You're you're in the States. You're waiting for us to get back. Are you having any thoughts at that point? Or is it until, like, we start coming back and, and people are bullshitting? And- well, no, at
1: this point, I think, um, you know. Like, um, what were
0: you thinking? Like, were you well, having more critical thoughts of the military at that point? Were you like, what the fuck did I do? Why am I here? Oh, I knew I made a, I, I knew I made a mistake. <laughs> I knew I made a mistake. I knew I made a mistake, <laughs> made a mistake you know, long before that point. Okay. You know? When, when some- did when did you realize that? I, I know for some people it's not a specific point, but if it is, tell us. It was probably before we went okay. off. I mean, you okay. know. Just um, you know,
1: being the new guy, and then having to earn that spot. Well, I'm not even say earn that spot. That sounds kind of, you know, Well, it's, no, it's you figure ridiculous.
0: after boot camp, it's going to be over, and then you go yeah. to the school of infantry. And then, it's, and it's it's, then it's just hazing
1: bullshit. with you know people that just don't give a shit. You know, we're talking yeah. about you know, um, complacency. Well, among yeah, among, that's one of the things for sure. I'm just well, talking just about like, just it's just
0: trying to fuck with people, and they're yeah. not. It's not for like. You know, really. This isn't like hazing college shit. or this like trying no. to help each other, or like really trying to build a brotherhood. It's basically like, can we humiliate this person? Yeah. yeah. Which then, yeah, which I think for a lot of people then makes you think like, well, what the fuck is this all? Yeah. About? Why did like, I this do this? This isn't. Yeah. This yeah. isn't some great institution, you know, or whatever. Anyway, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Right. Well, sorry.
1: no, you're absolutely right. So that you stick to with happen. Yeah. Yeah. So you start to. Question. So that's when I knew it was a bad idea. Like what, what I
0: had done. So, so what do you think by the time you're back from Alcon – you're in 29 Palms and we come back.
1: Well, see, the, the, the word on base was that, you know, 1-7 wasn't going to go back at that time. They are like, oh, you guys are going to go to Japan, you know? Like, they're throwing that, Each they're time throwing that shit around, yeah. Something like, okay, yeah, I can ride this out. At this point, you know, I'm thinking, like, what can I do to get the hell out of here? This is crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, what kept me there was the fact, that, oh, we can, we're going to go to Japan. We're not going to Iraq anymore, you know? Nobody thought the war was going to run on for, you know, 10-plus years. So, um well, some people
0: didn't, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, you know there's yeah. people out there who knew for sure that it was going to be a, a yeah. long, long
1: thing. I, I mean, I certainly didn't, I just I never really looked at it in the context of what, what we were actually doing, what we were doing it for, you know, I mean, I just was just trying to survive my my daily routine being in the military, mm-hmm. I wasn't really thinking about you know. You know all the other geopolitical interests, what we had over there, and like
0: what was going on, and you know. Well, and if you talked about well, well, first of all, I would say if you if you brought up any critiques of how things were being ran, first of all, you're going to get some shit. Right. And then second of all, if you bring up politics, you're going to get even more shit. That was my experience, at least. So I mean, the yeah. So I mean, it's not like you're you're being encouraged to do this and in some cases, like if you are in a war zone and you bring up those critiques, like there's a chance that they could put you in a very compromising position.
2: Yeah. Which yeah.
0: also happened in a, in a- well,
1: towards the end of my enlistment, um, when they had diagnosed me with a post-traumatic stress disorder, I had no idea what this was. And I had no idea I was even, you know, being diagnosed with this. Um, I had got NJP, um, which is, one stands one. for non-judicial, yeah, non-judicial punishment. punishment in the, it's UCMJ uniform mm-hmm. code of military justice. It's, um, the military's version of their courts, you know, the, their laws, um, which, you know, um, well, the long story short. I was driving back from 29 Palms, California. There was a joint DUI, um, task force operation between the 29 Palms cops and the MPs on base. The, we used to call them the PMO provisional, provisional marshals officer. And, um, I didn't, I didn't blow high enough for civilian law under, it was like 0.8. Mm-hmm. I
2: didn't,
1: I didn't go, I didn't blow high enough to be charged under civilian law but I violated the base general's rule of zero tolerance policy. So that got me a DUI charge on base. So it only applied to me driving on base. And you know, but the punishment was, it was harsh. They, uh, two thirds pay, which wasn't, I mean, obviously we, you know, you know, you don't get paid shit shit anyways. So two thirds pay for two months, 30 days EPD extra. Basically it's like extra duty. Um, The weekends where you wake up at six o'clock, you check in by eight and then again by 10, then two hours, so on and so forth. And um, <laughs> so you know so you're raking rocks.
0: Driving, you're raking you're raking
1: rocks. All kinds of shit. Or you know. Well, yeah. no. What really upset me about that is that I mean, they knew I wasn't intoxicated. They knew I wasn't intoxicated. I mean, it's come on. What the fuck are we doing
0: here? Like it's well, this yes. is silly. Well, so wait long. I got let thrown
1: me... under the bus, and and again, it had
0: I me. Mean, I built more resentment. <laughs>
1: you got
0: thrown under the bus. <laughs> well, wait. Let me because <laughs> we're, we're gonna get to that. I gotta. <laughs> I wanna. I wanna get back to us coming back from Alkaim. You being there waiting for us to get back. We get back. Everybody's in pretty fucked up shape and or they've had enough of the wars in the military. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, So so tell me about this period, because you ended up deploying again, which I often forget about. Um, And yeah, so I I forget that you that you deployed again. And and I was actually supposed to be on that deployment. So was Epstein so mm-hmm. was a bunch of us. Was Davis as well? Did Davis go out? No, Davis in? got out. Yeah. yeah he, so deployed, he avoided. He there avoided was a bunch deploy. of us who, who were supposed to actually be there because of the dates that we were supposed to get out of the military. Anyway, long story short, we didn't go. You did go. Yeah. Tell me about the period leading up to that, your second deployment. Because um, you're, you're listening to us. We're hanging out more. Well, we're yeah. smoking weed in your bathroom every day, yeah. all day. Yeah. For months. <laughs> 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 for, yeah, about, well, for well, yeah, about yeah. a month. Well, I'm sorry, for about a year. Yeah, for about a year. See, so that
1: actually broke my heart. I, really, I, felt, I felt really sad. Uh, I, was really, I was really sad when I found out you guys weren't going. Um, It just feels like, okay, well, shit, you know, this is, you know, but to do this, you know, after like this little resistance thing that we had going on with Third Platoon at that time. Um, You know, it, it was just hard. So basically what I did, I, I bit the bullet and I conformed. I had no other choice. I'm going to Iraq and I'm going, you know, we're not doing, we're, we're being dead smack in the, in the midst of the city now. So we're actually doing foot patrols and listing posts, observation posts and um, doing a lot more active, um, you know, operations versus what where did doing. you go? The same spot, same region, Al Anbar, the Al-Khame okay. region, but okay. we weren't in Al-Khame at this time because they had built that base up and they had a lot of army and air force there. So what they were doing with us, they were putting us in fobs. So they would take, you know, our company and, Put us in like four or five different places scattered across the grid, and there'd be anywhere from thirty to sixty guys at a FOB. So, what is
0: your experience during that deployment?
1: A lot of IEDs, a um, lot of raids. There um, a lot of raids based off bad intel. Um, I'll just, I want to say about ninety-five percent of the raids we went on were all bad. We're based off dry intel. Um, we'd go in and, you know, traumatize the hell out of a family, you know, during eating dinner and find, you know, no weapons or no intelligence. But there was a very few times that we, that we did, you know, we were, you know, we did find, you know, computers and, you know, videotapes of us on patrol and, you know, um, you know, stacks of cash, stuff like that. But, um, like I said, 95% of the time it was all based off bad Intel
0: and we were doing just a lot of, you know, a lot of that. So, um. But even the stuff that you found, I mean, the conclusion in the end is that well, they, they had a right to have that. stuff. Yeah. Well, a see.
1: lot of these people, we end up seeing them again, mm-hmm. they tell us, "Hey, drop them off at the at the you know bu- the bus stop,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, in town, or drop them off at a specific location." And um, you know, you, you 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 I'm sorry, excuse me. You know as well as I do what happens at that point. You know, mm-hmm. there's not really a fair treatment with that. But the FAB we were at. We had a, had a detainee detainee cages, so basically, it was like giant dog cages. I imagine when they were talking about um, putting the protesters in dog cages at Standing Rock, I mm-hmm. imagine you know when they, when I was hearing that going over the radio, that um, it was probably you know a lot similar to what we were doing to the the people in Iraq, um, and that in itself was pretty you know traumatic. Um, the way I look at I me mean, when I look back at it now, and I see videos of myself because I did I took a lot of videos and a lot of pictures of that second deployment. And, um, you know, when, when I go back to them, it just, it, it, it's almost like I feel embarrassed. You know what I mean? Like, you, you're just not, you know, you, you feel so much guilt and you're ashamed of how you treated those folks. And mm-hmm. um, a lot of the times it was, just, you know, we ended up having to release them because we didn't have anything on them. But, you know, the two, three, four weeks that they'd be with us, it was probably a hellish experience for them. So if they weren't insurg- insurgents,
0: then they should sure as fuck were when we let them go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or they just remain. Right. You know, traumatized and disdainful. And yeah, I'm sure. Um, so so you so at that when this is all going on, are you thinking to yourself, well, this is really fucked up? Yeah. So so you're already having those ideas because.
1: Prior, I was getting angry. I was getting very angry because I'm still trying to, like, you know, I have, you know, maintain some kind of here, and right. you know, obviously, I want to live and I want to keep everyone else alive, but um, it was, you know, I, I don't once you bite that bullet and just be like, okay, you know, like I'm just gonna conform and do what they tell me. I'm gonna keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and it's, you know, it's just more that, you know, for me, anyways, I don't know how it was for any other marine at that time, but I, I, I had a tendency to bank everything away and I'd be like, I'll deal with it later, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as far as the emotions go. And um, I'm just now recently, you know, figuring out that I have to now deal with all these. So and it's, you know, it's a trying experience. I'm dealing with emotions I should have been dealing with a decade ago, but I'm now dealing
0: with it, dealing with it now at 35 years old. So. So you leave Iraq the second time it was a violent deployment. It was no good, but you're done at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're how much time did you have left when you got back from that second deployment And. what year um a year
1: i was still with uh, one seven okay and um i think they did the cutoff thing if i remember correctly again and um i just um was within that that window of the cutoff so they wanted me to go again and at this point you know um i was like no I'm, I'm done i'm not doing this this last deployment i'm you know i'm done um and then they were the, the command was kept telling me like oh no you're fucking going you're fucking going and uh, that's when I had the NJP thing, it there happened during that same time frame. Well to finish that story off, what really landed me those charges um, was um attacking the PMO officer. I was I was just upset that I got pulled over and I'm being charged with the DBY, but yet you couldn't charge me with civilian law. It was it was all very silly. Mm-hmm. It was um, literally um I don't know what a beer would consist of that would make you register under a legal limit, but I imagine like I don't know, a beer, half a beer. Mm-hmm. It was around that. So it was um so I had a lot of resentment. I was a lot of uh, discontent at that point. So I attacked the P.M.O. officer, and that's what made the battalion sergeant major really slam that sentence down on me. And that's when they were telling me you're going to Iraq. And at this time, my parents were, um, you know, I told my parents what was going on, and she, my mom, she made a few phone calls. And next thing you know, some um, some psychiatrist pulls me up, and you know, he's looking at my record, and he's like, okay, yeah. So he's talking to me and how I felt, and he's like, yeah, you definitely got some PTSD, and um. Still, it didn't stop the command at this point. They're like, oh, well, you're going, you're going. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it took a little bit more uh, persistence on my mom's part, mm-hmm. and uh, which she did all, you know, a lot of it without, you know, my knowledge. And um, once the battalion sergeant, I think it was like the division um, psychiatrist had come up from Camp Pendleton to see me. And we had sat and talked and he brought up my file and we're looking, you know, we're going through everything. and He's talking to me. And that's when he was like, he's like, I'm making sure you're not going back to Iraq. And that, at that point, it really pissed off the command. That's when they threw me. We were in the headquarters company, and I basically I started sweeping rocks and know, sweeping more good. rocks and raking rocks. And
0: which is cool. I kind of liked it. It was better, better
1: than, than I would just know. get high as
0: fuck <laughs> in your bathroom, and then I would go to the HNS yeah. or eight whatever headquarters <laughs> mm-hmm. with Epstein, who thought it was great that I was high all the time. Better he than just, anything else. He would just make jokes, and then somebody would tell us what to do, and he would do his serious thing, where he'd be like, "Yes, yes, sir," and like you know, he'd be all like a fake motivated. Anyway. Those were good times, the H&S. So I'm actually really surprised none of us got caught. I mean, they knew what was going on. That, that That's the – Well, I also think that we had a lot of connections with a lot of people uh, in oh, the yeah. unit. And so we had dirt on a lot of are, folks. Are, so like if they did – because I learned my lesson with that when I got in trouble in Iraq. I should have because they were asking me like, is there anyone else – doing drugs on post, drinking on posts, sleeping on posts. And I was like, no, but I should have been like, yeah, every single post all the time, all mm-hmm. day. Like that's all that happened. Oh, I'm
1: sure. I'm sure they, you do. know, like, what yeah. do you, you
0: know, but I mean, you know, regardless, yeah. I, I actually think Markowitz was a little ignorant. I don't think he did know. I think he was just like, what the heck's going on out here? Mm-hmm. But anyway, so <laughs> you get out. Drugs it's the end. <laughs> it's the end. Drugs are a big deal. Um, they remain a big deal. And, and so you get out. You, you're you're done with the Marine Corps. What is your thoughts about? Like, when did you start? When does this start thinking? Uh, the thinking for you become more complex around the war and race and like all of these other things that then you you now of course are very aware of. And, and... Um,
1: this was probably when Sergio had given me a call and he had asked me to um, send those pictures and the and videos that um, that he knew that I had had of Iraq. Mm. So to the Winter Soldier event when you guys were going up to testify. So this is 2008. Congress. Yes. Mm. And uh, this is about a year after I'd gotten out. And at the time, you know, um, I thought, like, I'm going to get out and I'm gonna get a job at a factory and I'm gonna play that game like my father did. But unfortunately, you know, Buffalo, part of the Rust Belt, you know, the economic situation there was pretty shitty. So I was, com- I was remember standing in line. Well, fortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, you said yeah. Didn't end up in. A
1: yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but
0: anyway, go ahead.
1: And, um, you know, I remember competing against jobs with kids straight out of high school. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, here I am, a combat veteran, you know? I was still like very like, uh, you know, still trying to figure out like where my place was and trying to come down from, you know, those, the last four years. And, um, well, again, yeah, I'm glad it actually happened out the way it did because I never would've, you know, um, figured out where I am, you know, politically, as far as like, you know, how I'm willing to resist, you know, with everything I have at this point now. Um, just to make sure this kind of shit doesn't happen again
2: Mm.
1: you know right now that's my biggest concern but um,
0: go ahead no yeah so you so you start thinking about these things Sergio gives you a call then Sergio comes to live with you for a little while.
1: No, when Sergio gave me the call is when I was. That's when I really started. Um, you know, when I saw you guys testify in front of Congress, I'm like, oh shit! I'm like, what the hell is, what are these cats getting into? So I loved you guys. You know what I mean? Like, you know, yes. we're all very tight. You were all very close. So I'm like, what are they into now? And I just, you know, <laughs> I started seeing around. I'm like, okay, you know. And then you know, we started calling each other and having conversations, and you know, going to visit. And then Sergio, you know, not too not too long after that, 2010, 2011. 2011. Mm-hmm. Well, Three years later, yeah. After that, um, and he would come to surgery. Would come to see me up in New York, and you know, uh, we'd hang out and talk, and, and he'd tell me what he's getting into, and told me about his trip in India, and what was going on with you. and Then you know, we started going and having um, the reunions. Mm-hmm. So that's when I actually started, uh, you know, understanding what was going on with you two, and um, I kind of found myself um, agreeing with most of it, and uh, well, a lot of it for sure, and um, realized that it's uh, it was it was time to start paying attention
0: so so you, the 2012 2013 we don't have to go more anymore by the timeline like we're where we're at now right um, yeah like what are you thinking right now I mean we've talked about a lot of stuff in the in the recent months I think for a lot of people maybe um, maybe not so much my friends on the left who I think can be quite cynical about this but I do think that there's a lot of people who really are coming into their like their own in terms of their politics and, and their and their worldview, and I think a lot of this does have to do with the fact that we have this uh, insane person uh, running the most powerful military empire that's ever uh, been ever existed in the world and the and the richest nation that's ever existed in the world, and so in the context of all of that stuff, you know what what do you what do you just think about what the hell is going on right now? Well, I mean, obviously,
1: with the election of Donald Trump—or I'm sorry, the general election—and um, you know, Donald Trump, you know, taking the the presidency—if that wasn't more of a wake-up call, you know, at least for me, anyways—I um, don't know what else would have, you know, I don't know, got the gears rolling. I, I really don't even know what to say about that. I mean, we got people like, um, yeah, I don't know if it's going on—I don't, don't know how true it is—but they're talking about Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, and Tom Hanks. <laughs> running in 2020 oh um, fuck. at this point it's um I have to question that I mean it, it never is...
0: ends these people are crazy though I mean what the so f- 2020 that's the last shit we need to be talking about yeah is 2020 <laughs> Dwayne the Rock Johnson yeah it's going to give a cold oh, – oh, no, not a stone-cold star. He's going to give the, the – people's, people's elbow. elbow. Yeah, <laughs> Sergio knows. The people's elbow. The people's elbow is coming out in 2020 on the debate stage. It's going to kick Donald in the nuts, and then he's going <laughs> to fucking drop him and give him an elbow. Oh, man. So, yeah, so that – Jesus. Well, so – well, you know what we do in this context? I mean it's not even in this context. It's just what needs to happen all the time, I think, is just – you know, people have to get together and they have to fight. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the challenge now is just getting getting people motivated enough to do that because I think a lot of folks
1: actually think that the change is going to happen on a national level, you know, when it's actually just community politics, it's local politics getting involved there. I mean, I don't know if that's how it applies to anybody else, but that's how I thought. I'm like, oh, we're going to get you president, you know. He, might, he thought the same way with Barack Obama for a little bit. I'm like, okay, things are going to change a little bit. You know, we' see we're gonna see what happens and then you know virtually nothing got done so
0: um, yeah yeah well and that's the difference between trying to focus on I mean and this well, especially
1: the, on a community level what I mean but, so.
0: yeah well I mean here's a couple things I would say to that is I think that um, one of our challenges is getting people to think about these institutions that yeah. dominate our lives and less about these individuals I think it's really easy to talk about the individuals it's really easy to and not even so much easy but it's just, We gravitate towards that because we've been you know raised in a culture and live in a culture that really focuses on personalities and uh yeah i think some of the best writers and thinkers that i that i know um you know people like chomsky or andrew basevich these people who have been studying these institutions for a long time they provide a really good critique of how those institutions function and that to me seems to I think it helps because a lot of times I think we could get bogged down with this personality shit, Mm -hmm. you know, like if you go knock on people's doors and that's why I don't like knocking on people's doors for election campaigns because you're, you're endorsing an individual, you know, and you're not endorsing like an idea or a concept or a movement or a project, you know, Bernie's campaign was the exception, at least for me. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a way different thing. You know, we noticed that just yesterday for the folks who are out there, we are knocking on doors and uh, trying to stop the Bismarck Hill development, uh, adventure park development uh, that's going on. The uh, largest and uh, last sort of remaining untouched sand dune here in La County. And for those of you who have never been to northwest Indiana It is, uh, you know, as I've talked about in previous programs, a land of contradictions. You know, you have steel mills, but then you also have one of the widest array uh, of orchids in the entire world. You have more species of plants and grasses and birds and all of these different things that live in the dunes habitat. Um, And there's very few few of that left. There's very little of that left. And so in any case, long story short, for those of you who don't know, Locally, uh, there's a development project that's been proposed to put an adventure park on top of that sand dune, and it's one of those so-called public-private partnerships, and our local group, the Michigan City Social Justice Group, is opposed to that, and so uh, the environmental subcommittee, um, of which I am a member but I have not been participating, um, at least not on on a serious level like Sergio and others, but they've really... You know put together a nice campaign to try and stop this project and dead in its tracks and yesterday we were knocking on people's doors and talking to them about different things and it was it's very interesting to me how people react to these different issues you know like we're like hey the dune and the ecology is being destroyed and this private corporation is taking over a public the public commons and and they're like looking at me like who gives a fuck? And then I'm like, and there's gonna be crazy traffic, and people are like, <laughs> yep, fuck that. Was like, no, that was no easy
1: to go-to like, selling point. They're like, no, they're that. like,
0: no way are we gonna deal with that traffic. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I saying,
1: hey, how would you like bulldozers parked in front of your house?
0: <laughs> <laughs> said, call. yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were some people though. I have to give people more credit. There were some people who we like, yeah, I don't want the Dune fucked up. And there were other people, in, you know, which is what I had assumed when we were here. Mm-hmm. You know, like that class of people I, f- I figured were like, you know, going to be like, oh, no, not the Dune. Yeah. The public-private thing and, like, the jobs. that I could tell, like, people, I tried it out with a few people in the jobs thing. They're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. I'm like, oh, it's short-term jobs and that's not what we need. And yeah. You know, minimum wage, no benefits. It was benefits. a little
1: surprising that yeah, a lot of the folks in the neighborhood didn't even know what was, going, what was being proposed.
0: Yeah, Obviously. well, how would you know? But go ahead, Sergio, because you know. Yeah, and this power is power where power I
2: think the mistrust issue comes in. I think that was a lot of um, what I've heard yesterday, at least from only six people that occupied those houses. But, um, yeah, it was mostly mistrust, and that's why I was also reinforcing the fact of uh, transparency. Mistrust with the—, yeah, with the with the officials in the park and the board, especially the board um, mm-hmm. for the fact that they don't really, well, one gentleman was actually showing me who lives on uh, center street, mm-hmm. who was showing me the fence and that used to be a playground and there's still the the concrete is basically falling apart. And he said that they'd be trying to get him to fix it for like many years, you know, they haven't even touched that. However, they're willing to spend over a million dollars to prepare something for a private entity to come in and basically, basically privatize. It's yeah. a lease. It's privatization. Which you know, is, it's a handover. It's a neoliberal. You know, well, that's how they get over the public to private um, partnerships. That's yeah. how they, it, It's a feel-good way of you know robbing you. Yeah, and they, you know, we we tested those policies overseas, like in Chile, other countries in Asia, Africa, and now we're bringing you know, and then those tactics, those those are already advanced. Methods basically brought back here and now they're practiced here, you know mm-hmm. And it's it's important just for people to inform people of that and also talk to people about those things and kind of uh,
0: That it, you can take it and make it into the a global context And that's what we should be doing with all of these issues. This is what I try and do with folk for folks with uh, the military you know? So when people tell, when I talk about the military I try and make it a microcosm of US society So everything that's happening in U.S. society, you can talk about within the military, homelessness, suicide, alienation, violence, masculinity, patriarchy, racism, you know, and and, and how all of these things disproportionately affect uh, black and brown and women veterans more than it does us. Uh, And so, yeah, that's something that I think is important, Uh, you know, for people to be able to do that because they think of these small issues and they don't know that it's neoliberalism or that it is Mm -hmm. going on in different continents and who pushes those things and why and all that so it's super important yeah i mean i think that's the long-term challenge for us is to get people to think about it on that level but i mean what did you think about the whole thing what do you think about this whole thing that we're that we're doing luke because we are i mean you know i have to also talk about on today's program i don't have the flyer in front of me which is no big deal i could pull it up on the yeah. Facebook but yeah redefining I mean Day. I do want to talk about the redefining Memorial Day event. We've got about 13 minutes left in the program so um, give me just some of your sense of like what you think now that you you know, uh, are getting involved with different things. And, and well, I didn't and, actually. And why is it, why is it that you feel compelled to do that? Like, what, what is it? Besides oh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. Cause it's a, I mean, it's a, obviously it's a great learning
1: experience. I mean, I've never canvassed a neighborhood. I mean, I've done community outreach, but it didn't involve me knocking on, you know, random doors and asking people how they felt about a certain, you know, issue. And for me, it was just a little surprising again, to know that, you know, um, a lot of them didn't actually understand what was, you know, realize what was going on. So obviously it afforded me the opportunity to go over the notes and explain to him what was, explain to these people what was really going on across the street. Um,
0: well, and through probably, I mean, no it's fault it's of their own, yeah. Yeah, too. No, yeah, I just course. want to throw that in there. And through no fault of their own in many cases, because some of these folks actually called the mayor's office and asked what was going on. And they were told that it wasn't, you know, they were, they were told it's no big deal. We're just doing some restoration projects. No big deal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, I just want to throw that out there. No, yeah, of course. Um. But that's also symbolic. See, that's the other thing. We See, this is a great way also to, like, talk to people about how government is simply not responsive and transparent on all levels. So you can talk to people and be like, oh, well, that's funny. You know, like, we didn't know this locally. But look at also what's happening on the federal level. or Look what's happening at the state level. You know, so all these things that happen, like this disconnect from the executive of the city and the people of the city, and this disconnect from the uh, city council and this lack of public engagement. Like all of right. this is a great way to show people, right. hey, it's not just in Michigan City. Like Michigan City is just symbolic of what's happening around the nation, and specifically in the Rust Belt, I would say, and other other deindustrialized areas? Well, for
1: me, it got me to think when people weren't that, that disconnect was, I mean, cause mean, I, I study, um, um, the administration side of the policies and, you know, for me to see that, you know, it's not working on a community level and actually getting to see everything, all the gears moving, you know, at a, at, at a, you know, community political level was, a, uh, you know, which, um, got me to really think about it and how I can actually apply that later on. Well like I said, this is all new very new to me and, and to be out there with you guys canvassing the neighborhood was a great experience and you know it definitely was um less in, you know intimidating than I expected it would be. But um yeah, it's a great event. I'm glad to be here and obviously, you know, we wanna look after the folks of Michigan City and not see them exploited, especially for privatizing, you know, public the use of public
0: land. So mm-hmm. Which is a huge thing right now. Yeah, just the fight over public land.
2: Do you have something to say, sir? Just want to give a shout out to Michigan City Social Justice Group. They're awesome. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> just want to give a shout
0: out. Yeah, you can tell it's going to be a nice Monday afternoon for us here, in the, in the uh, studio. Um, yeah. All right. So, <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So let's talk about Saturday, man. I am pumped. I'm super pumped. 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. for the people out there. I'm going to bring this close so I can sound very clear for you. Redefining Memorial Day, May 27th, Saturday. This Saturday, six days from now, I think, is that five or six days? Five or six days, something like that. Depends (laughs) how you count time. Saturday at 2 p.m. here at Park it says it's going to be partly cloudy when the event is going on. It's going to be a beautiful day, 72 degrees. 1713 Franklin Street. Check it out. You know the name Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, Park. 1713 Franklin Street, Michigan City, Indiana. 46360. We have an awesome lineup of speakers. Get here early because we are expecting it to be very crowded. We are also having an after party at 4 p.m. Uh, directions and information will be provided when you get to the venue um we have a great lineup of speakers uh jonathan wilson who's from black lives matter northwest indiana he's an educator and an activist uh just spent time in africa last year uh teaching so he'll have a lot to talk about uh sabrina bosquez uh veterans for peace and also an activist she'll have plenty to talk about uh different issues that specifically impact female veterans but she also have a much wider range of things to talk about as she's also a member of veterans for peace Um, dominique edwards who's an activist and uh, talks about urban development and city gardens uh, and green spaces she will be here our wonderful friend from michigan city dr raul Contreras, will be here Vietnam veteran activist and professor, member of Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Uh, Huda, our Syrian refugee and activist who will be here. Uh, Abdul Sater Anaganda, he will be here, Syrian activist, and also Huda's translator. Uh, We will have Samuel Love here, a historian and an activist and poet, to talk about uh, the Memorial Day Massacre and much more after the event. Uh, Brian Bullock, who's a great lawyer uh, with the ACLU here in Indiana. He's also the president of the National Lawyers Guild here in Indiana. He's an activist and a writer. He will be here to talk. And also Dr. Patricia Hicks, who's a professor of African American studies and an activist from Gary, Indiana, who teaches at Indiana University Northwest. So. I don't need to read the official spiel. We've got about five minutes left in the program. Luke is making uh, noises that he should not be making right now in the background, but that's that's okay. I'm glad that that everything's just echoing like crazy off the walls. But yeah, no, it's awesome. Anyway, so (laughs) (laughs) this guy, Jesus, Um, we got like five minutes left. All right, so I'm gonna set this back down. Talk, Sergio. What are your ideas about this event and what do you hope to accomplish? And for those of you who are out there who are listening to this and thinking about coming, the other thing I want to stress is even though we have a long list of speakers there, it's going to be very brief. You know, I mean, people are going to keep their uh, comments to probably around five minutes to 10 minutes. And then afterwards, you know, we're going to have a QA and that's going to be, I think, where the most interesting dialogue takes place. And we want people to have. Serious questions uh, for these uh, many speakers, and and because these are people that I tremendously respect in the region, and they have a lot
2: of information that I think they can share. Sergio, well, oh man, it's been it's been really uh, exciting and also crazy, you know, just in general, uh, getting ready for this stuff and trying to get this place together, and obviously thanks to everybody who's been helping us out. Um, kind of putting pieces of clay into this, uh, sculpting, uh, the space. And so, well, I'm really excited. I really, I just, I, I would really love to see, and this is exactly what's going to happen is just people coming together from within the region, mm-hmm. uh, from different backgrounds and, uh, different communities, uh, and, you know, meeting each other and, you know, trying to create connections and work together. It's like, uh, like Jordan and Alexi who yesterday, who came from South Bend, amazing, you know, great guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, you know, now we have, now we have two awesome, um, activists and organizers who we can you know, work together on the same issues because we're, I mean, our communities are being affected by the same issues. Um, different communities, different issues. but in Well, as you mentioned, uh,
0: globally, exactly, not just across the region, exactly. but globally. And that's how we want people. As the old saying goes, I don't know if I really th- buy into this. Maybe I shouldn't quote it. But anyway, it's like think globally, act locally. I think we should think locally, globally, regionally, and act on all three mm-hmm. as well. But, I mean, I think it's a good saying just to get people to think. Yeah, you need people thinking in an international perspective, And that's what we hope to do, but also tie it into very real things. You know, Brian Bullock made a good point to me, um, the last time that we spoke and he was like, you know, sometimes it's easier to oppose, uh, imperialism and Donald Trump and talk all this shit about these senators who you're never going to meet, never going to see, probably never going to seriously challenge, but it actually on some levels takes a lot more courage to show up to the city council meeting and take on the city and you know ask people uh who you might run into at the grocery store you know hey what what the hell are you doing and uh or hey we don't like what you're doing or hey uh we want you to do something different Uh, or hey we're going to do something different so all right folks i will end the program there sergio thank you very much Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Luke. Thank, thank you. For, thank
1: you. It was a pleasure.
0: Yeah. So that was our friend Luke Lafko, the wonderful Luke Lafko. We <laughs> will have him back at some point. This oh, is sure. wonderful. It's so great to have these guys, and in our own space, it is a little echoey in here. I could hear it through these these uh, earphones, but pardon the echoes. It's not too bad, I don't think. And yeah, we we'll, we you know we still have to figure out exactly what the studio setup is going to be here. I um, wish you could sit where I'm sitting right now because the place does look excellent. I have to give a nice thanks to Tony Bianco uh, Jr. for making these wonderful bookshelves that are going to house uh, hundreds and hundreds, if not probably uh, well over a 1,000 books. And I look forward to uh, yeah the future. Of this place. So May 27th, come here if you're listening to this. May 27th, come to park at 2 p.m. And I will not talk to you next week because it's Memorial Day, but I will talk to you the week after. This is Vince Emanuele. You're listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you could find us every Monday at one PM Central Time on PRN.fm. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast, voluntary, involuntary, we don't know the contrast, organic. 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 Organic.